Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 208, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. New York City is doing away with its gifted and talented programs. We'll tell you why. And does teacher care need to be more than just self-care? Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, we'll talk about the ABCs of empathy and how it can make you a more effective educator. Hello, everybody. Nick Cortigo here, and I'm joined by a friend, Director of Curriculum and Instruction and co-host Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? I am fantastic. We are at the, uh, I guess, more than the midway point of the fall term. That is nice. And making it. <laughs> and the weather's finally starting to get cool here in the South, and I'm always okay with that. Yeah, I agree. And um, I don't know if I'm looking forward to just freezing at football. That's true. But it, it's nice to be able to enjoy outdoors, you know, and be able to breathe. Yeah, no doubt. All right, so let's jump into it today. I got some um, interesting things, and we're going to start up with our friends up in New York City. I saw this um, story. Um, you know, they're the largest public school district in the country, and um, you know, sometimes what they do is often uh, kind of a sign of things to come. And I noticed that they are phasing out their gifted education program. Have you heard this? Um, no, tell me about it. Okay, so apparently they decided to do away with their gifted and talented programs, and the reason why isn't so much about, hey, we're just tired of it. It really comes down to the startling data that shows how things are very uneven in terms of racial justice issues. Um, so there's been some national studies that show that only 8% of students in gifted and talented programs are black, um, mm-hmm. even though they make up 15% of the nation, nation's uh, public school enrollment. And Latinos similarly make up about 18% of the gifted program enrollment, but there's a 27% share of Latinos in the overall student population. Um, so they are going to go their own way. They're going to try to build some other type of program, apparently, but um, they're doing away with the gifted program. And the reason they say that things are so unbalanced isn't so much because of the intelligence of the students, of course. It actually has to do with the fact of who's making the referrals. And it looks like the referrals are made of about 80% um, Caucasian teachers or educators. What are your thoughts on hearing so all they that? Think- so they think there's some bias to the referrals. Correct. Have, um, you, have you heard of this? I mean, is this kind of... Ever- I, no. And I guess it's because we do things a little differently. Um, we screen all of our students in a certain grade to help with identification and not just 
waiting for teachers to randomly recommend. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I don't, don't quote me right this second for some dumb reason, (laughs) I've drawn a blank, but I'm just going to give you an example. Um, when students get in the second grade, we'll screen every single second grader as just, just as an example and identify those that meet that base criteria for the possibility of being in the gifted program. So we're not just taking, you know, referrals from any particular group um, of teachers. So that surprises me um, if that is their only process is to get the referrals and then um, do the deep testing. Kind of what you're saying is what the criticism of what New York is doing is in this particular article um, that I'm looking at. And it says, you know, you need to fix the problem. You don't just like do away with the program. You, right. you, you need to change address the protocol. It also points out in the article that you have affluent families sometimes, they're more likely to shell out money for test preparation classes and tutors. And, and if they don't like the results of the school's testing, they can afford to go and pay for their own private testing. And I don't, I've, have you ever known anybody to be like, oh, I, I tested them. They are gifted. No. Is that is that common? I've never heard of anybody really no. doing that. But no, I, guess I haven't either. But the bigger picture here, I think, is just for the simple fact that now, um, because you can't figure out how to get more fidelity in your process, children are going to miss out on the exceptional, you know, program, and that's unfortunate. Right. Agreed. So uh, we'll see how that one plays out over in New York. The other story that kind of came across uh, my radar um, was out of Ed Surge, and it was more of a, an opinion piece, but but basically mm-hmm. it's making the argument that school leaders need to take note that teacher care is a lot more than self-care. And, you know, we've talked a lot about self-care and yeah. like things to do for teachers yeah. um, and how hard it is to be a teacher right now in this climate. And often, you know, some of those things are, you know, deep rest, meditation, quiet time, you know, things like that to, to reflect. Um, well, this article saying like, it's going to take a lot more than just, you know, trying to teach or tell teachers to go do these things. It needs to be done mo- much more at a group uh, level. Would you agree? Well, I'm not going to say that I agree. Here is my um, very transparent response. Teaching has always been difficult. Serving in schools has always been difficult. And while we're in a pandemic right now or the political climate is not great or whatever the case may be, I believe that impacts every profession. And we when we sign our contracts, we sign to serve children, to give them 100% of high quality instruction. And I don't necessarily think it's the employer's job to provide self-care. However, I do think that it is great for your morale and great for the culture and climate of your building to do things that show that you care, that you appreciate um, the effort of teachers, highlighting those that are going, you know, even further than the minimum expectations. But I also think that we as individuals have a responsibility to find ways to de-stress from our very difficult jobs, whether it's exercising, which is not one of my faves. you know, reading, shopping, whatever it is that takes your mind off of things. I think that we have to be good stewards of managing our 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 lives and our stress ourselves. Because the truth of the matter is, um, and I'm speaking from being a former principal, right. we can really spend a lot of money trying to buy things to make people feel better about the job that they signed up to do. And on top of that, the reason why we end up spending a lot of money is because 
there are regulations on the funding that we have to operate our schools and our districts. And you can't go out and say, it's been a tough semester and I'm going to, I'm going to order all of my teachers one of these items because then you're violating state code. You cannot buy teacher gifts. So it's, it's really hard for leaders to find ways to help make their people feel good and to feel appreciated. But at the same time, it's stressful on leaders too. This has been one of the hardest times with dealing with people being out for quarantine and trying to cover classes. And, you know, it's hard on that side too. So I just think that we all have to show each other grace and understand that that life in itself is really difficult right now. And let's be kind to one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's find ways to speak positivity without being um, toxic with the positivity, mm-hmm. but just being honest about we're, we're in these trenches together. What would really even help this even more is if our communities um, recognize that, hey, you know, Drop off a basket full of um, muffins or a basket full of, you know, bag popcorn or something to to lift the teacher's spirit. I think that it that more than just the building leader needs to be involved in trying to um, help teachers feel good about the very difficult job that they have. Yeah, some of the suggestions in this article are a little vague, um, but I think the, the, what the author's trying to point out is that leaders need to, you know, of course, focus on teacher's self like what what's obvious you know but also Mm -hmm. kind of focus on the group and the system and building a good foundation and culture um they they speak a lot in in generalities but they say like for example acknowledging individuals both personally as well as professionally Um, so that's that's very inexpensive and easy to do and a moment ago i mentioned about the culture and climate in the building there are a lot of things that should be happening regardless when i said um teaching has always been hard Mm -hmm. there are some things that should have always been in place to help motivate and encourage teachers after you know working so hard um for your school district and serving children personal notes in their mailboxes go a lot further than just an email saying hey great lesson today right um gene passes you know um lunch free duty-free lunch, just different things. Um, But what makes that difficult right now is if you have a lot of teachers out because of quarantine and it's difficult to find subs, then you don't have the coverage to give teachers, you know, an off period to just kind of go take a Coke and and sit to the side and, you know, de-stress for a moment. And at the same time, we're trying to build teacher capacity. So their planning periods, teachers don't get an off period. Their planning periods are used to plan their lessons, to collaborate with other teachers. And one thing that you could do is be intentional about possibly canceling an upcoming planning meeting um, to just allow teachers to do what they might need to do in their classroom. Because that's one of the big things that I think I've um, been told over the years is I just want some time to plan in my room. I just want some time to get my things together because they spend so much of their own time grading papers, returning phone calls and making preparation for instruction um, and teaching teachers that is okay on Saturday and Sunday to disconnect. Right. Yeah, that's I mean, gosh, the, the phones in general and every occupation, I think, have really change what the work week is you know um yes. it's like uh, that's why I almost like you he- you're going to start to hear more and more about like the four-day work week 
I'm almost okay with that because there really is no such thing as a four or a five day work week because we have our phones, right? We're always working in the evenings and and on the weekends. So we're we're squeezing extra hours out of people around the edges. Um, So I'm curious to see how that plays out. The other thing you talked about like short staffing and we, we haven't really talked about this on the show, but you know, there's there's this big push to to raise minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour. It's probably not going to happen at the federal level anytime soon. But you're seeing more and more companies, you know, at least saying, well, we're going to start paying our employees fifteen dollars an hour, whether that's Target or Chick fil A or whoever. I guess what I wonder is, you start doing the math, fifteen dollars an hour, forty hours a week, fifty two weeks. Yeah. I mean, that's like thirty one thousand five hundred dollars. You factor in some overtime, mm-hmm. it's about thirty four thousand dollars. I mean, do you happen to know offhand what the starting teacher makes? In Mississippi, um, I'm going to guess and say that it's around 36 to 37. So it's like if you have this pressure cooker job at 36 or 37, or that's with a single degree, right? With and a sing- zero experience. Yep, single degree and zero experience. But you compare it to the fact of like, oh, well, I could go work at Chick Fil A and make 34,000 and not have to work as hard, you know, not have the same stress. I just wonder, like, are we going to start to see? Some of these these industries who are increasing their their minimum wage and their starting pay almost pull from a teacher pool. I, I, am I crazy to think that way? It could possibly happen. It could most definitely happen, and that's why it's so important for our, our legislators to to really listen mm-hmm. to our teachers and our teacher organizations who have been pushing and pulling for teacher raises for some time now. Yeah, mm-hmm. legislators will say, "Well, you know what? We're going to have to bump it up. We're going to have to increase the wage here for our for our educators to make sure it's uh, appealing enough." So exactly. Has this year been as hard with staffing as one might imagine or have you oh, managed okay? We've managed okay, but it's still difficult. We were filling positions right down to school starting. We have a couple of bank vacancies now. Um filling sub openings, that's difficult for when teachers, you know, are mm-hmm. out if they're quarantined or even if they just need to take a day for their own personal business. It's hard to cover classes and I think it's harder than it's ever been. A lot of people don't realize, um, if you don't listen to the show all the time, that you're a little bit of a recruitment champion. Uh, how's how's <laughs> recruitment looking for next year? I actually just attended a job fair at one of our local universities, and they are pushing out about 77 graduates this December. And so that was a great opportunity to speak with them on site, get a copy of their resume. And at this point, it's no longer really about the candidates selling themselves. It's about selling your school district. Hmm. So you feel like you're having to put the hard sell on the candidates at this point? Oh, absolutely. And so I was very um, fortunate to be able to attend with our retention and recruitment specialists. Um, you know, although I don't operate under the HR department, it was a great opportunity to go in with, you know, I'm thinking about what we need in our classrooms, um, where our deficits are. And so I was able to use that knowledge um, in screening them and seeing who could potentially be a strong candidate and going ahead and trying to make connections with the principals based on the grade level. And I came back and I immediately emailed principals a couple of names. Hey, these are some great candidates for your grade levels. These are some great can- you know, candidates for the secondary levels. Hey, reach out to them. Jump on it now so that you know if you have a vacancy, they can start in January. What's the answer you normally get when you ask like a, a candidate, why do you want to be a teacher? I'll be very honest with you. I stopped asking that question. Yeah. Because what I felt I received very early in my um, administrative career is literally the lyrics to a Whitney Houston song. You know, (laughs) I just 
or we, we are the world. I, I just, I don't, I don't really want to hear that anymore. I think the better questions, you know, what's your philosophy of, you know, what, what describe for me what a uh, high quality classroom with high levels of engagement, blah, blah, blah. What would that classroom look like? If I walked into your classroom, what would I see? What would I hear? Yeah. How would it make me feel? Um, what do you think your role is on the team? Right. Well, Christina, that that is uh, some good interview uh, tips there for anybody who's on the other side of asking the questions rather than having to answer them. Uh, are you ready for uh, today's bright idea? Yes. Our guest in today's bright idea segment is one of the world's leading experts on empathy, and she's going to help us understand why empathy is crucial in education. And we'll even touch on how we can get a little better at being an empathetic person. Dr. Helen Reese is a psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and she's the co-author of The Empathy Effect, Seven Neuroscience-Based Keys for Transforming the Way We Live, Love, Work, and Connect Across Differences. Dr. Reese, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you so much for having me. It is really an honor to have you, and I hope we can um, you know, hopefully get our listeners, who are mostly educators, really understanding why empathy is so important in the world of education. But before we dive too deep into all of it, I want to first kind of clear out what may or may not be a, a common misconception about empathy, and, and that is, is empathy an innate quality, or is this something we can teach and learn? Well, the answer to that is it's both. Um, for many, many years, people thought empathy was something you were either born with or, or not, and that there wasn't too much you could do about your empathy quotient. But um, now many research studies have kind of uh, put that notion um, on its head because we now, um, including my research team at Mass General Hospital, have shown that we definitely can teach empathy skills um, and that a lot of it has to do with just heightened perception and attention to people's emotional cues. That sounds complex and I don't, I don't want you to have to dive too deep into this, but how can you with research prove that this can be taught and learned? Well, in our research, we took a hundred doctors and we randomized them to receive empathy training or not. And then we gave them empathy training and asked patients to rate them before and after any training took place to see if patients could see if there was a difference. And, um, you know, what we taught them was, um, you know, how to look at people with openness and curiosity, how to uh, read their facial expressions, um, and how to go beneath just what people say they want to what they're really concerned about. And so a lot of teaching empathy is um, opening up that curiosity about another person's lived experience. And so you, I guess, started your research based off of the idea of like, how can I improve the doctor-patient relationship, right? Like you weren't really thinking about this for everybody, were you? No, I was specifically trying to address the empathy deficit in healthcare, but i as I did all my research, I realized that these skills really could apply to really any group, any industry. And I just like to clarify that empathy is not one thing. It's actually a capacity to perceive and understand and know to some degree what feelings another person is experiencing. So when we say empathy, we, we really are talking about a capacity for perception processing what we perceive, and then 
um, being motivated to uh, to to uh, give a response. Well, uh, yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit, though. So so it's like you can't when if, if I'm saying this person is empathetic, that's not really that's too pointed. You're saying it's almost like empathy is the ability to, you know, appreciate where someone's coming from, but then also react to that. And, and, and how how well you do that is kind of the range of capacity. Is that is that what you're saying? Well, you know, I think the simplest way to think about empathy is that it allows us to appreciate somebody else's thoughts and feelings. And then we process those based on what we see, feel, smell, you know, hear. And then um, we are then motivated in most cases, if somebody's like suffering, to want to help. But um, the actual decision to help or not is um, that is what I consider to be compassion. So compassion is what comes out of us. It's the action part of empathy. Empathy is the understanding first, you know, what's this person going through? What is their perspective? How do they see the world? You know, how do I take off my own eyeglasses and put on their spectacles and see the world as they see it? Your book is is really incredible. And you dive into so many different crevices of this. Um, we are only going to be able to kind of scratch the surface a little bit in this interview. Um, but again, it, it, the book's called Empathy Effect. And, and in it, um, you guys actually turned the word empathy, I guess, into a, to an acronym. Um, and for example, you know, E is eye contact and M is muscles of facial expression. And we're not going to go through through each letter, but I do um, want to try to highlight a few of those. And, and let's just start with um, E, which is eye contact. Um, this one kind of jumped out at me because I feel like it's something that educators can take and and run with pretty quickly. That's an excellent place to start. And um, the reason is that learning only takes place through um, emotional engagement with a teacher or with a subject matter. And for a student to be motivated, they need to see that the teacher recognizes them as a unique individual. And there's nothing more powerful than making meaningful eye contact with students to to show, like, I see you, instead of just looking kind of at a blur of faces and not making individual eye contact. In the Zulu tribe, the word for hello is, I see you. And I think that's something really important to go beyond, hi, how are you, or even just say class, you know, today we're going to be learning about X, Y, and Z to actually intentionally make eye contact with the students when they're speaking up or when they are looking confused. So the power of just our using our gaze, and I do not mean staring people down at any means. I just mean sort of like looking in somebody's eye to have them know you're you're there, your your presence, your your attention is with them. You actually give a pretty good trick, I think, and and that comes in the way of um, you say notice the eye color of the person that you're looking at, and I assume you don't mean verbally out loud saying, "Oh, you have beautiful blue eyes." You just mean by noticing it, yeah, in your own mind, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, I realized that one way to know that you have made eye contact is to register the person's eye color, um, and you know, eyes are way more than just blue or brown or green like there's so many different shades and some of them are mixed and um so it doesn't mean just like oh he's got blue eyes i'm good but it means like meeting the gaze so that that person knows that you have recognized them and that is a a handy trick um 
that I sometimes use with our trainees in healthcare. Like I'll just say, oh, and what what I, what was a patient's eye color? And they all look at me as if I'm a little out there. And I'll say, how about you let me know next time? And then they'll they'll come back and say, you know, when I look the person in the eye, something different happened. I, you know, we both felt like I was all there. That is awesome. I have to use that just in like regular life practice. I think that's such a great little tip. Yes, it really helps in social situations. Working down the acronym of empathy, we're going to jump to letter A, and that's affect, which I guess is a scientific term for the word emotion, right? Yes. So um, as you mentioned, I'm a psychiatrist. And, you know, when we do an examination of our patients, we are, um, we are looking for emotional cues to let us know, is this person, you know, showing anxiety? Are they depressed? Are they fearful? Are they confused? And so as part of our psychiatric exam, we have to write down the patient's affect because it's really essential to, um, you know, evaluating, you know, what, what they need as far as a treatment plan. And there's a well-known phrase called, if you name it, you can tame it. And so if you can name that somebody looks confused, you're probably going to be a little more conscious of trying to clear up confusion than if you just look at someone's face and don't really try to uh, name what emotion you're seeing. And, you know, the same is true for all the basic emotions like happiness, sadness, fear, surprise, anger, disgust, and contempt, which are considered the universal emotions that you find in really all parts of the world. In this section of the book, you specifically say naming emotions is important for teachers. And and I guess my question is, do you want educators to verbally say, oh, hey, I understand you're feeling X or Y, or do you want them just to recognize it to themselves so they know how to react better? Yeah, that's a very important question. I do not mean starting to label people and saying, oh, you're angry or, oh, you're disgusted. Uh, Naming the affect is something we do silently to ourselves. And usually just by naming it, you adapt your interaction with that person. Like if someone looks really sad, you're not going to say, hey, how's it going? You know, you're going to say, how are you today? So you'll adjust your tone of voice to match what you, and then you might say, are you feeling okay? You know, you look a little sad, but you wouldn't just come up to somebody and say, I can see you're sad. You know, do you want to talk about it? Is that, that doesn't really give the person a, a, a kind of a warning that you're actually interested in having a conversation. Yeah. I would think that that could almost backfire. I would, I would think if you said it out loud like that. Yes, I think it's more to be really attuned to people's, like students' emotions. So if somebody who normally participates in class a lot suddenly is kind of withdrawn or daydreaming or seeming distracted, you know, that's okay for, you know, a few minutes. But if if you start to see a pattern, then by just noticing that change in, in emotion and attention, a teacher might think it's appropriate to say, is everything okay? I Notice you've been less, um, you know, talkative in class, and I miss hearing what you have to say. In, in chapter seven of your book, you um, specifically write about teachers. I mean, that whole chapter is pretty much dedicated towards 
educators. Why did you feel it was important to have a chapter focus on that profession? Well, um, Nick, the reason is that, um, you know, I founded Empathetics, an empathy training company that is um, the most part geared for healthcare. But we get so many calls from other industries and education is, you know, one of the top um, industries that's interested in expanding empathy. Because I think as all good educators realize, most learning is emotional. You know, if people are engaged emotionally, they're more apt to, apt to remember things. They, they'll want to read more if they're engaged um, you know, they're, they're going to uh, get that spark or that desire to, to dive deeper into material. And so we want to kindle that light and that, that, um, that curiosity that actually helps kids, like, figure out, like, what am I truly interested in? What really, you know, gets me uh, interested in uh, learning more? Like, where do my talents fit with my interests? How, how do I develop them? Um, I, I want to say I saw in a video somewhere that you um, actually say that, you know, there's a lot of focus on STEM education, uh, maths and sciences and so forth, but there's not as much focus on uh, emotional education and, and empathy. Is that how you feel? You feel like we should be stepping up that game in our K through 12 education? I definitely do. I think we're in a society that is quite ill-equipped to talk about emotion and feelings. You know, our our education systems for, you know, hundreds of years have been trying to cram information, cognitive information into the brains of children and and young adults. And um, I think we need more than information to succeed in the world. We need to be able to have difficult conversations. We need to engage with people who are not like us. We need to appreciate when somebody needs support. Um, We need to learn how to speak up when someone's being bullied. So these are all parts of an emotional education that I think we have really a a long road ahead to, to introduce you know, these kinds of um, sensitivities and skills so that we have a more peaceful and humane world. I, I think there's these, these, you know, our world today um, is a great illustration of what happens when people can't talk civilly with each other because they don't understand their perspectives. And just jumping to escalation and anger is not the way to um, move forward together in, in any setting. You know, we, we probably could improve a lot of the problems on uh, Twitter and the political arena, I guess, if we, we were all better at that. Um, so you kind of dive into the science, and this is really interesting to me because I've never really heard anybody talk about this, but you, you talk about younger brains and, and how they're socially motivated. And I guess there's been research saying like where they've studied middle school brains and they kind of see what part of the brain lights up. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. So... Um I think this is a fascinating topic because um, I, I don't know if how it was when you were a learner, but when we learned history, we were basically just, um, you know, presented with all kinds of world events, the dates, uh, where the, you know, where the war happened, when it started and stopped and who was in charge. Mm-hmm. And 
I remember feeling it was very dry because none of those people really meant anything. They were just names on a page. And young learners are, you know, when you look at what they what they gravitate to naturally, it's um, it's stories. It's um, you know, watching short videos on things, and they're they're very engaged um, and often for a short time. So. Um, I think we can really harness the way the younger brain works to, you know, present material maybe, um, you know, in in an audio book that engages them maybe a little more in a, in t- types of um, games and also you know kind of even drama. So, you know, learning to act out, you know, what happened at the Battle of Gettysburg, for example, could really come to life if, um, you know, if if the arts or, or some dramatic um, techniques are used instead of go home and read this, you know, this chapter and you'll get a, you know, a test on it next week. So engaging kids in what they already like to do. Um, and many of them listen to music all the time. Many of them are very engaged through the, the hearing realm, some more than the written word. And, you know, the use of what we now, almost everything is an audio book, like just really figuring out what is the learning channel for each individual student and how do we present the material so that they're really engaged. You you talk about, um, I guess, how a middle school child is, you know, peer groups are a top priority. And, and you mentioned that our brain doesn't fully develop until age 25. I think it was about 27 for me when I finally started, like, realizing what life was about. <laughs> and and um, it just takes a little while, right? Like, our brains aren't aren't fully developed yet. And um, you you kind of drive into, and I think you, you have a, a colleague or somebody you know, I think the last name was Armstrong, where you talked about, like, experience-based learning and... and, and um, yes. What what do you mean, like when you talk about experience based learning? Like, what could a teacher change um, to make sure they're reaching those children whose whose brains not fully developed? Yeah, so you're referring to uh, my colleague Liz Armstrong, who introduced problem based learning at Harvard Medical School. So instead of learning, you know, um, all about a disease, um, you know, what organ it affects, what kind of you know, changes happen, what kind of treatments, they, they study a person, you know, so if you're studying a person with diabetes, for example, you're really thinking about like, how does this affect the whole person? You know, what are they eating? So it it becomes much more uh, socially driven. And that was my point in the book that kids um, are, are really motivated by understanding social signals, like who's in, who's out who was invited, who wasn't, you know, their, their brains at rest are constantly solving social problems or musing about social events. So to bring, um, you know, characters to life in in a, in a social setting, like if you have two heads of state that don't get along, you know, presenting the material more about like, you know, why do these two not like each other? What, what, what does this one stand for that the other one doesn't? What would a dialogue sound like? You see, that lifts the the lesson off the page, and it becomes like a social problem. And that's what engages kids, especially in the teenage years. We've already talked a lot about how us as educators could be more empathetic 
to be a better teacher. But what about the flip side of that? How do you teach a student to be empathetic while they're in school? I mean, is there a way to actually teach empathy in, in the classroom setting? Oh, yes. And this can start in kindergarten. So, um, you know, there's a, uh, a a system called open circle that I'm familiar with, where kids sit in a circle and they are invited to bring any social concerns, you know, like Jimmy was mean to Tommy on the playground. And so instead of saying to Jimmy, Jimmy, stop being mean to Tommy on the playground, you would ask the children, what do you think Tommy was feeling when when Jimmy said that? And what do you think Jimmy was feeling that he would say that to Tommy? So you present these as like kind of a emotional puzzle, like what what was going on that he would you know, either push him or take his toy or whatever. And so you set a norm that talking about feelings is not only allowed, but encouraged. And many times, even young, young children can say, it wasn't nice of Jimmy to, you know, to push Tommy on the playground. Um, his mom is really sick. You know, maybe he's upset about that. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's amazing how astute young kids are to like um, motivation for why kids do things. That that leads me to a question I wasn't really prepared to ask, but you made me think of something. You're talking about, you know, we we have a chance to reach these young young kids, but let's hypothetically say there's a there's a grown man in his seventies who it seems like the most I don't know if it's empathetic if that's a word, but least empathetic person. Can you change that person or is it, are they too far down the road to where, you know, even through psychiatry that in counseling, it just wouldn't be possible to bring that person around? Well, Nick, um, research supports the notion that there are about maybe 4% of people who truly lack empathy. They don't have the brain wiring to really appreciate how other people feel. And um, that might be a little too high a number, but it's important to realize that some people don't have it and they're kind of dangerous because they really are incapable of imagining, you know, what it feels like to, you know, to be called a name or to be threatened. Um, They they don't have the, the fear response Um, And they're lacking other kind of mirror neurons that help us know what other people feel. So, but I don't think we're talking about the people with a true, like, true full deficit. They're people who are more, you know, on the spectrum of not having that much empathy. And sometimes something as simple as saying, can you imagine, you know, what, what that might feel like um, for, you know, the other person or, can you imagine how that would feel if that were happening to you? You know, you might get an initial, no, you know, I don't. But um, if you stick with somebody, sometimes just staying in conversation, they'll they'll actually come around to saying, I, I, I can imagine that doesn't feel very good. So um, I'd like to leave our listeners with, with a little tool. Um, for trying to advance empathy in any relationship. And it's, it's what I call the ABC. 
Acknowledge when you're in a difficult conversation. B is take a deep breath because that gives a little pause from the trigger to our response. And C is show curiosity. Because as soon as we move to judgment, there's really no open door left to show empathy. But if we say, gee, I'd like to understand why you did that, you might get a, you know, an angry response. But once the person's listened to and heard, you usually can get to a deeper level. You know, maybe they're upset because it reminds them of something that happened in the past or it's, you know, the third time somebody's been, you know, mean to them. But before we start scolding, I really think we need to acknowledge that's the A. B, take a deep breath and show curiosity. Like, tell me what just happened here. Help me understand what just took place. That is phenomenal advice. And and again, the book is called Empathy Effect. If anybody, I mean, it's just packed with information like this. It was a great read. Um, if you feel like you have an empathy deficit, run out and get it. Um, it was just really good material and not just for educators, but I felt like there was such a strong education a connection. We definitely had to have you on the show and I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Oh, thank you for, for those kind words. I really appreciate them. Are you ready for our pop quiz? Sure. I think so. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Well, since we're on the subject of empathy, I would say the subject of um, reading literature, and that can be from the most basic board book to, you know, sophisticated stories in high school, because reading literature, and I mean good literature, um, actually helps people become more empathetic because they can get into the mind and heart of characters who are not like themselves. And I want to stress again the use of audiobooks because some kids find reading hard and they, they lose interest, they don't stick with it. And um, so hearing great literature does the same thing. That's good to hear because I am a loyal Audible subscriber. Um, what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Well, I think we touched on that today. I know some schools are teaching socio-emotional learning, SEL, but I think we have a long way to go before this is uh, really uh, integrated into every school curriculum. What does every child deserve? Every child deserves to be seen, heard, and appreciated. It's basic need. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? I think most educators feel like they have too many jobs. I mean, they, they are... Many of them are, you know, filling in for like parental teaching that isn't happening at home. Much of this is the socio-emotional learning. Um, many of them have classrooms that are way too big. Um, and, you know, just having the supplies that can help them be the best teachers they can be um, really should be, um, you know, an absolute guarantee when they're teaching a class. Um, so I think those three things in particular. What's the best gift to give an educator? The best gift to give an educator is an engaged student. Like there's people going to teaching because they love their subject matter or they love kids. 
And, you know, if you're talking to a blank wall, you're not going to feel too fulfilled at the end of the day. But if you can inspire kids to love what you love, um, that that light, that flame is the greatest gift and makes teachers feel that they're that their job is so worthwhile. Which teacher changed your life? Um, my ninth grade biology teacher, Mr. Yanarelli. <laughs> I had always loved English and writing and reading. And um, because of his phenomenal zest and zeal for the subject matter, I came to love biology. And um, it really steered my course to um, eventually go to medical school and, you know, just get to learn so many things about how we're made, how we work and how we function. But it really was his love of his subject matter that was so contagious. I've got to ask, did you ever have an opportunity to tell him? I did. I, I've, ri- I've written him letters and he wrote back. He's retired now, but he remembered me uh, way back from ninth grade. And um, it was really a joyous moment when we reconnected. That's really cool. And last question, pen or pencil? Pencil. All right. Again, Dr. Helen Reese, we appreciate your time. The book is called Empathy Effect. And I guess the best place probably to keep up with you is at y'all's website. It's uh, empathetics.com. Is that correct? Yes, empathetics.com. We keep a news um, feed. Also, we're on LinkedIn and Twitter. And I imagine, do you ever speak to school groups? Yes, I do. I've spoken to many school groups. Excellent. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Class Dismissed. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure is mine. Thank you so much, Nick. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. Thank you.